Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my extended conversation with the extraordinary Joy Harjo. She is a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation and U.S. Poet Laureate. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this, including her playing the saxophone, wherever you found this podcast. Okay, so Zach, are we ready? All right. And do you have Crazy Brave and An American Sunrise with you? I do. And I also want to tell you, I have a new music album, so I could you could find songs. Or... Yes, I know. I listened to a bit of it, and we will. It's fantastic. Yeah, okay, I'm excited great. about that. I also want to say, I know that you are working on a new memoir. Yes. Um, so, what, so we will absolutely foreshadow that and whet people's appetites for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to give you a sense of where I want to go here, you know, I really, I want to talk about who you are, how you became who you are, how, how you see and think and make poetry and art, and, and, and then, and also read some passages and poems um, and muse on them. Um, I, uh, if you, if you at some point in the course of the conversation um, want to read something, please just feel free to, to, to do that or grab it or mention it. Um, yeah. And then I think let's, let's just go. Just, do you have okay. any questions? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I actually have the manuscript, the first pass proofs of Poet Warrior up. So I was wondering, I might be able to read a little something from that. Yeah. Too. If you want to do that, um, I'm very open to that happening in this space. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so as I so I actually started reading Crazy Brave a few months ago during the pandemic, and I read it. I kind of read it like poetry. I read it. I read it a little bit at a time and savored it a bit at a time, which was a wonderful way to read it. And um, so, really, um, I, it, it strikes me. So, in in preparing to be with you, I I, I looked at other some other interviews you've done. And um, you know what I I really want to draw into your sensibility, your gifts of seeing and knowing, um, which includes um, vision and dreams and memories that are not contained in this lifetime. And I I felt like people don't really go there with you, although you go there in your writing. Um, you know, for example, you. Um, You've written that you relived your own birth in a vision on a mountainside in Colorado, or I think around the age of 40. And I wondered, you know, normally a question will be to somebody, where did you grow up? <laughs> Which we'll talk about that too. But I'd love to hear about what you, what you saw about your own birth. Um, start there. Well... Did I write that in yeah. crazy? I actually put that in crazy <laughs> you did. Right? You did. <laughs> well, I guess I opened myself up for that because I try to embed things so that I don't, you know, so that I don't appear 
crazy because well, see, these things are yeah, but they're just you're as not real. Crazy. I think that's why people don't talk about it because it's hard to talk about this way of seeing and knowing, right? So I just want to see if we can do that um, with the dignity that it that it possesses in your writing, for sure. I mean, I mean, here's some things you wrote about that. You said, "I was relu- though I was reluctant to be born. I was attracted by the music. I had plans." I did not want to leave mystery, yet I was ever curious and ready to take my place in this story. Um, I'm just so fascinated that you had those apprehensions. Yes, what happened? So, every I'm a great grandmother now. I was a grandmother in my 30s and a teenage mother. Yeah. And what that's given me is a kind of a, a broader sense of the story field. Yeah. And I've certainly, yes, I've been at the birth of my children, but I've always tried to get there when a grandchild is being born. And and what I've noticed, and I've noticed this with newborn infants, is they, they still remember, they're still carrying uh, memories and stories. They still know things. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they're young, I remember my daughter skipping up to me when she was three. She used to say, when I used to be a boy, yeah. when I used to be a boy and would just cry if I wanted to take her to the girls' section for clothes. And I have a granddaughter who's come up to me and said, well, we used to know each other. When we knew each other, da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's obvious that, that she and I have an old connection. Yeah. So when I was an infant, I used to travel out of, I used to travel, my spirit would leave my body. Well, we can say we do that when we dream. Some mm-hmm. dreams are, I eat too much pizza or I eat pizza when I shouldn't dream. Others have a different cast to them and others we know instinctually to pay attention. Now, what happens is, you know, this, we don't live in a society generally that supports this kind of, that supports dreams as knowledge. Yeah. And we don't, we're not living in a place like that. But think about it, you know, that's about half of our lives we're out gathering information that we may not bring forth consciously. And for some of us, it, it, um, it's like, it's a library that we go to when we need to know mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works in that way. Yeah, and children do do come out with things like that um and and there's a reality to it that, that adults don't know what to do with i have you ever heard of, there's this it made me think of this um this um story that occurs both in in Judaism and Islam that um the angel gabriel that before each of us is born the angel gabriel kisses the each child on the forehead and they are born, and then they begin to forget it all. Um, and I was, I was thinking of that story. I mean, one way to talk about that thing that we observe, with, that you describe um, so richly. Yes, it's like we go into the place of forgetfulness because yeah. to remember everything would be, we have enough burdens here. Hmm. You know, many of them have certainly have, uh, they're tethered elsewhere. But I think it's it can be too much to 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 know all of that because we're here to you know see what we will do without 
without that. You know, Crazy Brave went through several versions. I was 14 years late turning it into the publisher, which is not like me. I get my work in on time or I wouldn't have a career. And one of the versions was like twice as many the pa- twice as many huh. pages as the final version, and that's because I cut all the dreams out. Really? Pretty much, yes. <sighs> and I was trying to figure out how to embed them. The, my new memoir, Poet Warrior, which will be out in September, it, it's similar but different. And mm-hmm. it's certainly it's coming from a different point of view from being much older yeah. and looking back. Because when we come through that doorway, when we take on breath or inspire spirit, we take on the spirit here and we're young, we are close to that door of knowing everything, you know, the door of uh, mm-hmm. eternity. And we're so creative and artists of any sort are always trying to um, replicate or be in that kind of space. And then when you get older, when you cross the 50, 50 year mark, you know, <laughs> you know, you're, you're starting to head out the other way. And then when you get to my age, you realize it, it's, it opens up. It's not like maybe some people become children again, but what it does is it's you're once again uh, closer to that kind of, yes. of knowing and awareness. Yes. Yeah, it's another thing we don't really know how to talk about. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, yes, and it's, sometimes it's called wisdom. That's a, right. That's a, yeah. That's what I, and it and it is because it's wisdom beyond what um, you know our our mental our mentality our earth mental minds our earth mentality it's much larger and more immense than earth mentality yeah so joy i um grew up in oklahoma oh really yeah i grew up in shawnee okay and so for me that's a big uh point of connection in starting to read you although you know to be honest, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the story field a minute ago, and you, you also use this language I love of the story matrix that connects all of us. Um, but when I think about the Oklahoma, the sense of Oklahoma you had and the sense of Oklahoma that I had, it's almost more like parallel universes. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, I mean, I think we're in this time, and I am personally part of this in this time of Waking up to all the stories I didn't learn growing up, right? The mm-hmm. stories of the place I was in. Um, I mean, your the place of your childhood and the places of my childhood um, had this completely different realm of story and song and spirit. You know, what you describe as a different cartography. And I just want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, it, it's I. it was years after I left home that I... I mean, I grew up in Shawnee. Next door was Tecumseh. We're in Pottawatomie County, right? Seminole is a place I know. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Muskogee is a place I know. But it's almost like, it's, and what, what kind of puzzles me at this stage in my life and at this stage in our waking up as a civilization, which I do think is happening, however fitfully, is that the place names were retained, right? I, I, I wonder about that, why they retained the place names when all the stories and the meanings and the significance were removed um, for, 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 for people growing up there um, who, were not, who were not tribal. And so 
I don't know. I just I wanted to put that out there as we begin as something that's very much on my heart as I as I read you and I feel like I'm learning about the place I came from in a way I've longed to, but was certainly not offered to me um, in my official education, right, <laughs> in school. Yes, in a more rural Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are many different realities. Uh, as I'm ta- speaking with you, I'm scrolling through my the first paths proofs of my new memoir, trying to find this place. If I don't, I will just tell you Yeah. Uh, about... I think about all of those different realities. You know, when you come into, especially when you come into a new town, I travel a lot and I'll be in a car or a bus or a van or or whatever, looking at the houses and the windows and all the storefronts and thinking about all the different realms, all the different story realms and Mm. how many, every place, every window, every doorway is an opening to a life. You know, a whole different life, a whole series of stories, and 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 it's multiplied hundreds and thousands of times, and and some don't overlap at all. Some are in their their very um, private universes. Other universes are more expansive. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 amazing to me uh, to. Go, you know, to have lived my first eighteen years in a place and have all of those names carry the experience that they did, um, and but you know, not to have known, you know, that when I say Potawatomi, that's a nation, right? That what that you are that one Muscogee, that you were from the Muscogee Creek Nation, who Tecumseh was, mm-hmm. um, uh, that he was of the Shawnee tribe. Um, None of, I mean, even, you know, even when you described Tulsa, where you grew up, just this is not a way I would ever have known Tulsa, a Creek Indian town established on the Arkansas River after my father's people were forcibly removed from their homes in the South in the mid-1800s. Yeah, and there's, there's different, there's different universes. And, and what happens in this country is that Natives, are, our stories, our presence has basically dis- been disappeared from the American story because if it's true, if it's true that we're still here, that um, and if it's true that what did happen was, you know, was um, uh, grand theft and massacre, um, then then there's something inherently uh, broken with the story. Mm-hmm. That needs to be that needs to be repaired. The other thing too is that we are here, and yet we people expect us to be in our traditional outfits if they want if we're recognized. They don't recognize us unless we're mascots or yeah. we're wearing our traditional outfits. You know, I I also so hey, Joy. There's a there's a noise in the background. Um, it's somebody's doing construction. Oh, okay. And I don't know what to do about that. The windows are closed. How, is it is it annoying to you? Can you hear yourself think? I can. I okay. I've had to work around it. Oh gosh. Um, Zach, what are you saying? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, are the windows the windows are closed? Yes, they are. And it comes and goes. All right. I think when we re- produce it. 
yeah, we'll work around it. Yeah, it's not always. It sounds like they've really revved it up, and I don't know where it is, and I can't go tell them to okay. turn it off. <laughs> okay, where are you now? I'm in Tulsa. You I'm in, in an apartment uh, mm-hmm. given to me by the, um, it came at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. Mm-hmm. We have a train that goes just a few hundred feet behind here, too. Mm-hmm. And they were running their horn. They're not supposed to after 10, but they were running their horns all night. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know what that, I don't know what that was about, but mm. I'm like half awake. You know, I'm awake. I'm fine. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you also refer a number of times in your writing to the easy and familiar humor of Oklahoma Indians that others would recognize. And what? tell me about that. Oh, man, I wrote a whole chapter of it, <laughs> of it in my... <laughs> You know, I think it goes with people. It seems to me that the people who have been are still very close to their collective suffering in removal and and so on. One uh, trick of survival is the development of a tremendous sense of humor, hmm. and so they're and especially. I mean, I've been around natives all over the all over the world, but there's something about Oklahoma natives. You know, something about a, a Southern kind of openness, which get, makes more holes for laughter to go through or, the, you know, the <laughs> ironic, <laughs> for the ironic to um, to live. Because it is, you know, certainly maybe just living is ironic because there's always dying, <laughs> you know. So, right. and a lot of self-deprecation. The book, my new memoir, opens with, I used to love to take drive my Aunt Lois Harjo, who is, she was about my age or a little older than I am now. I would drive her all over the Creek Nation, which included Shawnee, Tecumseh, and over to Wewoka, and all the, uh, Okmulgee yeah. to all these places. And she lived in Okmulgee. And I love going to uh, a cousin of hers in mine house, George Kozer Sr., and he had, he had such good stories. He used to actually work in the rodeo and perform and all that. So he was a good storyteller. And the book ends with me, with my cousin George, uh, telling stories. George Kozer Jr., because we hang out just like they did. And the book ends with a story of, you know, here we are again. Here we are. It's going to keep going. And then I tell the one of my favorite stories. He had a good friend come over and say, hey, you know, you want to go to lunch? I'll take you to lunch. And so he got all excited that he was going to get to uh, go into town. He had a ride into town to go have lunch someplace really cool. Well, he drives drives them into town and then pulls up at the homeless shelter where they're feeding people for free. I love stories like that. Mm. You know, <laughs> to me, yeah. that's that's one of those funny contemporary stories. <laughs> so that they would get a free, you know, he, he wouldn't have to pay for buying his friend a lunch. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one th- I thought one thing I might do is just there. there are some striking passages that I feel kind of invite someone inside your sense of who you are and 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 how you hold a sense of that that goes so much farther back than the story matrix that most that that American culture is aware of most of the time um 
or ever. Um, this kind of cosmic sensibility you have. Um, I don't see you using the word spiritual very often. Is that is that too narrow a word? I think part of that comes from not wanting to... So many images of natives or stereotypes are yeah. usually around bloodthirsty warriors or uh, spiritual guardians who know everything and are protective and, and so on. And certainly because these lands are inherently indigenous, uh, there is, you know, ultimately everything is spiritual. <laughs> Every Ultimately everything has... A, a spirit is connected spiritually. Mm-hmm. But that I think that if I think about it, that would be why I, I try to stay away from that because one, I don't want to be interpreted as that kind of figure necessarily. Yeah. I w- it's important that I think that everyone realizes that they have a connection with the natural world. It's not something that just belongs to the indigenous peoples. We might be closer because we've been here longer to, you know, particular elements of it. But, you know, this is something that is inherently part of the legacy of human beings. So, yeah, so here, so your father was a, was a complex character who you loved, and you, you, you kind of lost him through divorce. He, he, he wasn't as present in your life. Um. But he he was born of tribal leadership, is that right? Osceola, the Seminole warrior, was was his uncle. Uh huh. Is that correct? But I just so here's something you wrote about him, and I just I just would love to understand it better and how it how it demonstrates kind of how you think about reality. You said my father was ephemeral; he was about ten percent body. The other ninety percent of him was spirit, and was unreachable even to him. This earth can be difficult and jarring. Joy can only be known through despair here. He was about 10% body. I've noticed that with people. In another passage, I describe my mother as fire. You know, as somebody who is much more actively engaged with the, the physicality of being. But my father, my sense of him was that he was overwhelmed with what he knew and what he could not say, um, a kind of perceptual awareness that he had no place for. What was he going to do with it? Right. He didn't. Um, his family had been broken. His mother died when he was young. He had a stepmother who came from a totally different sensibility, and life went on. The domestic sphere was was uprooted, and then. They sent him off to military school when mm. he was a young man. When he was, and I look at those images of him. I'll have one in my memoir, and he's so. I just see this this deep, deep, essential spirituality and knowing. And he didn't have a path. He had no one to show him how to use those gifts. And is that using about? Is 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 is, is I, I'm I'm intrigued by this, um, and I, I think about this too from a different spiritual tradition about how somehow the body, it, and I want to I want to know if this is what you're saying that 
in some ways we need our bodies. We need to inhabit our bodies more fully in order to really inhabit our souls. Um, is that what you're saying? That could be part, partly it. And, and I think of that especially when a lot of it's in American education. We're so influenced by Descartes and yeah, that system yeah, that chin says, up. Yeah. yes, or the mm-hmm. Puritans, which were part of the uh, origin stream of America, which, you know, the body was something unholy and something to be disregarded and even disciplined you know, disciplined and disregarded. And when the body is really part of an incredible garden, those Mm -hmm. are two opposing approaches or universes or realms. And how do you rectify or how do you even find, is there any kind of path possible between them? Yeah. And is that, is is finding that path between them and, and having them be in interplay with each other? part of, um, I don't know, the path to wholeness or to healing? Perhaps. I mean, we're, we are right in the middle of it right now all over the world in, you know, in oppositional governments, oppositional ways of thought, you know, one in which women are to be controlled and, and the body is, is considered a tempter or um, it's, you know, it, it seems like we're still in that no matter history and layers of history, and we were in that, we're still in that kind of, I don't want to call it a war, but perhaps it is. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, um, it was very, it was quite joyous and fascinating to read your writing about your your early life, um, your young adulthood, um, which had which had which had hardship in it. Um, you, as you said, you 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 were a teenager when you first became a mother. To be reading all of this and um, to know that. Your story was going to progress to you becoming poet laureate of the United States. <laughs> That's you know, crazy. I mean, there's <laughs> this passage I wrote down. I was like, you know, um, this is where but the morning before your son, the morning your son was born, his father dropped you off at the hospital and then went to work. And you, you wrote, it was still dark as we walked through the cold morning under oaks that symbolized the stubbornness and endurance of the Cherokee people. They made Tahlequah their capital in the new lands. I looked for handholds in the misty gray sky. I wanted to change everything. I wanted to go back to a place before childhood, before our tribe's removal to Oklahoma. And he wrote, I wanted more and I didn't know how to get it. And, and I didn't at that point. Yeah. I mean, think about it. We had no money. We had no resources. And I used to walk those streets wondering. I knew that there was something more, and I had, there There was no door. The only thing that kept me sane, I think, was, well, I'm very grounded, for one, but, and I have a lot of common sense. I mean, I'm very, I think I'm half, I'm half mentality. I'm always, um my mind is always working and then I'm half into it, you know, creative intuition. Yeah. And so those places can meet and maybe thinking about the question earlier about these oppositional ways of thinking, 
Well, I think they can meet when it comes to creativity, when it comes to making art. And I think in the end, that's what really helped me through was, you know, developing disciplines of art. I used to draw and make art. And then I then when I was a student at University of New Mexico, I got into writing. And it was that discipline of art, which gave, you know, visioning is one way that and the ability to vision and having tools for visioning helps any of us out of almost impossible situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, you at, at one point you also had a very difficult stepfather a situation in in your home when your mother remarried, and but you, how did you talk about it? You went to the Indian school in Santa Fe. Um, uh, you said you escaped the winter of your childhood in the Indian school in Santa Fe, which had a great, which was a great, which actually had been, ha, ha, that was so interesting to me to learn about this place that had once been run by the military and was now a school for Native arts. Um, and that that place also gave you, uh, or I don't know, you had the arts, but it it welcomed that, right, and drew that out of you. Well, one, I I was safe. Yeah. I was in a safe place yeah. away from uh, danger. And two, I was with my community. There were Native students from eighth grade to two years postgraduate from all over the country. And every one of us had applied to get in with our respective arts. And we were all two of a generation. And I think every generation is a kind of person and every generation has an energy. And Mm. we came in with this collective story to tell and and a kind of urgency too, you know, coming in on uh, with framed by the the civil rights movement and and then finding our places, you know, our voices and our place in the American story as indigenous peoples. So it wasn't the usual tale of Indian school like Carlisle Indian School, which yeah. was founded by the uh, Mr. Pratt. Uh, I didn't name all his titles. Uh, <laughs> kill the Indian and, um, you know, kill the Indian and make the, you know, uh, that's not quite something, the man. You know, we're going to kill the Indian, find the human being, and we're going to do it through, you know, military um, discipline at Indian school. It's a, it was a very different kind of school. We had some of the best artists, Native artists, predominantly Native artists, and non-Native artists in the country. And that was uh, our curriculum, as well as academics, which was, mm, it was all right. It was not the strong point of the school. And yet we had in place the military system and th- words like restriction and detail and, hmm. you know, those kinds of, of words and, and rules. But at the same time, we were given permission to create, and um, and create we did. Our ge- our class and our generation became the really shifted Native art in the contemporary world art scene. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about something. Um, you wrote about um, Father John Staudenmeyer. Mm-hmm who was one of your teachers there. Um, and he said, so you really actually, I mean, as you say, you you always painted and drew and, and, mu- and made music. Um, and it was really even later than this that you became a poet uh, 
that you understood yourself as a poet, I think. But you did you did write about him that at that young age. You said he was the first person to talk to you about the soul. And you wrote this intriguing sentence. He asked me to pay attention to the poetry of the living. Tell me what that means, what that holds for you, that phrase, the poetry of the living. Yes. Yes, he wound up, it was not a Catholic school, but he wound up there. He was driving through and wanted to check out the school, you know, because it was native education. And then someone was didn't show up, so he wound up teaching for <laughs> that year I was so there. Funny. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was, yeah, he was wonderful. He mentored many of us. And I was in an English class with several other students. We were all bored out of our minds because the teacher was using fourth grade readers to teach us. And we were like 11th grade students. Uh, Students, just like any 11th grade students, we had all kinds of stories and dramas going on. And and people were very literate. Some people were not as literate in English. But my gosh, if people, we were like a generation away from orality, most people, some of us two generations. But the stories and the awareness of of language and literature was just amazing. Mm. So, of course, we were bored and because I was, I was drawing cartoons and then writing things. Things I should. <laughs> they put me in a class with with uh, Father John Staudenmeyer by myself. But oh. he let me. He let me read what I wanted. So I was looking to what the, in the library. I always would check out stacks of books in the library in Tulsa and the little library in the neighborhood, and. I was pulling up, reading Thomas Hardy poetry and novels and just whatever I could get my hands on. So he just kind of stood out of the way. But we would we would read photographs. He would pull up photographs or images and ask me what I saw. Mm-hmm. And I learned that you could see, you know, even in watching people and, and watching situations, in a way he gave me permission to know what I know. Hmm. What a teacher, huh? Yes, and we're still friends. <laughs> Where is he now? He's in Detroit. He he uh, retired from I think there's a university, a Jesuit university up there, mm-hmm. and uh, he he retired from there. He worked at Holy Rosary Mission for some time, but he's very soulful, very soulful, and and wonderful man. And he's followed my uh, poetry all these years because he knew. Where I came from, I used to come into his class wearing a, a Army Navy pea coat and, you know, sandals on, my hair hanging down in front of my face. I would always keep my. There were years where I wouldn't look at people really. I would just kind of, you know, edge into a room, and uh, he helped me with that. Mm-hmm. And the poetry of the living. What what is that? What does that phrase hold? The poetry of the living. Well, what is poetry? Is poetry? I think a poetry is a kind of lyricism. I think a poetry is a place beyond words <laughs> that we, uh, you know, the paradox is we use words to get there. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, lovely. Um, something you wrote about music also that I'd love to draw you out about is that music is a language that lives in the spiritual realms. We can hear it, we can notate it and create it, but we cannot hold it in our hands. 
And that connects us right back to that mountainside, you know, and going back to birth because most of our experiences here on earth, if every human being, whether they think that having visions or remembering dreams might put you in a different kind of, you know, they might separate or distance themselves from that. But everybody, you think about it, what is our reality? What is a person's reality? And most of us are living in our memories. Many, you know, we, we're always drawing on memories. We go into a situation. Uh, we're drawing on dreams. We're drawing on things that have happened in the past. We're drawing on things that we don't even know. I have a story in my new memoir about, um, I call it the donut story, where I was in a spin class in West Hollywood one time, spinning away. <laughs> And I got off, and I'm really pumped with endorphins. And, you know, I hadn't eaten. I don't eat donuts, and I hadn't had one in years. And suddenly I'm standing there, and I think, I want a donut. And I, then I said, wait a minute. Where is that coming from? Because I could see the donut, the sugar glaze, you know, the mm -hmm. experience of it. So I followed the donut thought, and it landed at the guy next to me. And I realized it wasn't my thought. That was profound. <laughs> really? It was, yes, it was profound because I realized how many thoughts do we each have that we think are ours, but they're not ours. Mm. And so I started for a while following my thoughts. It's actually kind of interesting to do. And then you find out that, you know, some of them, you know, a lot of what you're carrying could be from DNA, you know, from, yeah. from you know, your grandparents, great-grandparents and... Some of it is from you walk through somebody's thought field and picked up stuff that wasn't even yours. I mean, we do it all the time emotionally. We can we somebody it, comes yeah. in and they're really upset, and then everybody else does, and they don't know why they are, and and so on. So that made a lot of that made a lot of sense to me. But as some as funny as it sounds, you know, don't it? It's it was still very profound to think that. Wait a minute, you know, I could be. You know, that, it, so that's why that, you know, s sitting quietly and listening is such a good practice. Mm. You can call mm -hmm. it meditation or whatever, or sitting out in the nature. There's usually none of these creatures and, and plants and elements in nature have any reason to uh, manipulate you. They're just there in their world. But um, so if you sit in nature, you can, that's where you can become. Uh, calm, unless there's a volcano going off. Nature isn't always mild. It's and not beautiful. right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the other thing. Nature can be very destructive and wild and fierce. Yeah. Yes, and just yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about what we do with stories mm -hmm. culturally, and there's a passage where you wrote about. Television. I mean, this was just an aside, right? I mean, you were telling a larger story of your life, but I want to read this. You know, I mean, I'm just even especially coming out of the pandemic year. I've been trying to think about what effect is Netflix having on us civilizationally, oh my right? And what 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 you wrote just felt like it opened that discussion up. You said, "I turned on the television set, the story box that changed the story field of the world." The commercial aspect of stories threatens the diversity of the world's stories and manners of telling. The television stands in the altar space of most of the homes in America. It is the authority 
and the main source of stories for many in the world. And of course, now our computers have become our television sets. Yes, they have. Talk to me about that. How you look now at this story field and what we're doing with it, what's happening to it. Well, it seems like it's gone a little wild. <laughs> yeah, I was, let me try to find this. I was writing about it in the memoir, but about how I came of age of a very different time, a very different time than right now with with the distraction. I, I start yeah. thinking of what is the reason, why, or the purpose, and what, what is the purpose of, of the distraction and what's behind it. You know, it could be part of a, a natural evolution given technology. Hmm. But, um, yeah, let's see. Uh, let me see. I have it right here. Yeah. I am writing in an apartment in downtown Tulsa, which is where I am now, which is where you can hear hammering and you might hear a train here in a little bit. <laughs> I, w- I was born before cell phones and computers before the proliferation of devices installed with memory, which prompt the user to forget. I do not want to forget, though sometimes memory appears to be an enemy bringing only pain. There are so many memories. One, return my mother to me. That memory opened up in a dream. There she was sitting on a roof of a house in red shorts, not long after she had given, not long after she gave birth to me. She was stunning in her youthful health. She was laughing. She was my son. I often wish that I had written down everything my aunt and all the elders told me so I could have their wisdom, their struggles, their hard-won stories right here for referral to provoke and even cultivate new stories. Growing memories and the ability to access memory is a skill that allows access to eternity. It is within all of us. I do not have the best memory. I often tell the circle of old ones who, when I speak with them, and I do speak with those whom I love who have moved on from this earthly realm, especially when writing poetry or any kind of story or music. They remind me, here's your opportunity to practice memory. I am not the best listener or speaker, I tell them. Take your opportunity with grace, they tell me. You are Mm -hmm. here to learn. Learn how to listen, how to walk into each challenging story without fear fearless Hmm. it does seem like um poetry for you is a learning is always is is that you when you it's it sounds like when you write poetry you are receiving and learning as much as you are teaching or yeah there's a revelation for you in the act of writing poetry Yes, I think that's why I went to it is because it's it's sort of like, you know, unless it's an epic poem, but even then it is kind of a pocket. It's a doorway, a doorway. Uh, a poem can be like a pocket that can hold anything, almost anything. Mm. And you can head, hold different kinds of times. It can hold grief, it can hold history. And it is often, you know, a poem has come to me or through me and, and it's taught me what I needed to know. One of my most uh, at periods it's been it was a poem that was used often it was fear song or fear poem a poem to get rid of fear and I wrote that it was one of the earliest poems I wrote and that's because I needed it hmm. and so when you're writing and I think when you're creating too it's 
the large part of that act of writing or whether it's music or stories or poetry or or drawing or any of the and it's it's um a large part of it is listening mm-hmm. yeah and it's true that our um there's so much noise there's so much there's so much noise and kind of clutter um in what we what we take in now as a matter of routine minute to minute and hour to hour it's kind of hard, i think it's harder to I, I i i it's harder to get to that place of listening just just organically clearing some space for listening now it really is and there's all kinds and it's been programmed that way you'll hear a ding i was in the middle of something the other day and i heard a ding on one of them. i try to turn them all off yeah and I realized I hadn't caught that one, but it just sets up this. It's like Pavlov's dog. This, yeah. It, and it's shocking. It shocked me when I realized that here, my body was, was reacting, and that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to stay on my track of listening, and it was disturbing to me. And I'm thinking, what is all of this leading to? Why, why is it necessary? Is um, somebody? I, the way I usually what I usually come down to is somebody is hungry for money, so if they keep you there with these sounds, if they, you know, if they addict you, then they will have your attention, which is, um, you know, their attention and your attention means money for them. Mm-hmm. But it becomes such a vast web of reality and detail, right? Uh, the complexity of what the offerings are and how they've become integrated into our lives. But as you say that, I'm thinking of a dream that mm. I had the other night with my, my grandson, Chasen, mm. who is a beautiful young man, six feet two, um, who has uh, left Albuquerque, has a job in Roswell, and I love my grandson so much. And he was in my dreams. He's not always, we were very present with each other in the dream. And we're talking about, I had a few things to tell him and we're standing there. And then I said, look, and we were watching the stream of consciousness where, or unconsciousness or whatever you want to call it. We were watching together how every thought goes into the stream, every thought, every dream, every action and we were watching the the immense stream of all of this and how it was making patterns and how there were actual patterns and shapes and you know it was an immense creative field but it was beautiful and it was woven together perfectly even though you would think that it could be a chaotic mess yeah hmm. so there I'm, was yeah i'm still thinking about that yeah um, I wonder, I, I'd love to maybe hear some, talk a little bit about your, uh, your poetry collection, An American Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, um, would you just tell the story of this, of this, of this volume, this idea? Yes, I had taken a job at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and wonderful people, one of the best, you know, I, I'm still in touch with them there. And 
I took it uh, for a number of reasons, but one, it was down in our homelands, and there was a yeah. story that um, that uh, my grandfather, Manahui, who fought Andrew Jackson against the illegal move, was um, went to Knoxville every now and then to steal horses with his warrior friends. Of course, I say they didn't really steal horses. Those were still Muskogee Creek lands. Oh. And um, although Cherokees came in later, and a lot of those towns, the Cherokee Overhill towns, are all in Muskogee Creek names. <laughs> but I got the job anyway in Knoxville. But the Tennessee River was like a, the rivers were roadways, you know, like I-40 or any of the interstates. And um, so I took the job, too, because my husband, who's the same tribal nation, same ceremonial ground, we wanted to go see all of these places are families came from we still knew names of places stories and i even found a house that belonged to an uncle of mine in columbus georgia and the book got started because we were preparing to leave to go back to tulsa and i was thinking what do i do with this we came here looking for our people looking for the stories for this place that our our origin stories have their roots here. Our people's roots are here in these plants, like these kind of plants. And um, it's so beautiful. And I can see why why sometimes people would say, don't go back, because it's devastating. It would break mm. your heart. And there I'm thinking, we are so excited about going back to Tulsa, going what we call home. How can this be? What do I do with this? Because do with this with... The heartbreak that happened when we were forcibly walked out of our homes at gunpoint, uh, loaded up and marched across, you know, states across the Mississippi to, yeah. you know, what do I do with this? What do I do with this contradiction? And I was looking out into the trees there one morning and the uh, my spirit says, well, you know, what did you learn here? And that's how that's how the book came. That you started writing these poems out, um, out of that yes. question. Mm-hmm. Yes, out of that question. Mm-hmm. Would you read the first poem, "Break My Heart"? Okay. Yes, I will. That's called an Ars Poetica, which is the art about the art of writing poetry, which is also the art of living. Poetry mm-hmm. and living aren't. <laughs> They're often the same thing. <laughs> okay, break my heart. There are always flowers, love cries, or blood. Someone is always leaving by exile, death, or heartbreak. The heart is a fist, it pockets prayer or holds rage. It's a timekeeper, music maker, or backstreet truth teller. Baby, baby, baby. You can't say what's been said before, though even words are creatures of habit. You cannot force poetry with a ruler or jail it at a desk. Mystery is blind, but wills you to untie the cloth in eternity. Police with their guns cannot enter here to move us off our lands. History will always find you and wrap you in its thousand arms. Someone will lift from the earth without wings, Another will fall from the sky through the knots of a tree. Chaos is primordial. All words have roots here. 
You will never sleep again, though you will never stop dreaming. The end can only follow the beginning, and it will zigzag through time, governments, and lovers. Be who you are, even if it kills you. It will, over and over again, even as you live. Break my heart, why don't you? I was wondering, um, you know, having grown up, when I think back to growing up in Oklahoma and learning about, you know, the five civilized tribes, I'm putting that in quotation marks, you can't see me, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and the Trail of Tears and what, um, you know, the... Well, the absurdity and 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 the cruelty of and and just the of that of that language of the five civilized tribes, which was never reflected, um, and of course the Trail of Tears, which is, uh, you know, tragic isn't a big enough word, terrible. But I feel like learn we learned that as um, learned it in school as uh, kind of you know a regrettable but necessary chapter on the way to. In the, on the path of progress. Mm-hmm. And it shocks me that it wasn't questioned. I mean, something called the Trail of Tears. I mean, did you go to public school in Tulsa and also hear that language? And mm-hmm. Of course. And, and probably even believed it. I mean, it, really? I mean, on some level, what is it? I, I came up with this phrase the other day and I thought I thought it was funny, but it was like, you know, this is this whole racism, all of this is so embedded that I said I'm even prejudiced against myself, mm. <laughs> you know, because it is. I mean, it's part of, there's our reality of being who we are. But in this story, the, this American story is that all of this was done so that, you know, to fulfill a dream given by people who came here who, you know, God gave this land, you know, like this land is mine. God gave this land to me. Yeah. You know, that, that it was, that was a God given land here. And any, you know, those of us who were standing in the way of it were, were deemed savages. Just ask Cotton Mather, you know, in the Puritans. Oh, officially, officially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did did that conversation happen in your circles of family and friends in the tribal circles about the, that? Yeah, about all of that, the the narrative and the words. I think back then we just knew, you know, education was what it was. You know, it it was not our, it wasn't our education. Yes, we were being educated there. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a in my neighborhood. There's a lot of creeks, you know, Cherokees, Seminoles, and and non-natives, but uh, I don't know. There was a kind of authority there. You know, you're going to school. It's its own authority. Yeah. And it's uh, it's what it was. And no, we didn't hear about ourselves there, or we were just a part of expendable history, like you said, mm-hmm. to uh, to get to this place of of great civilization, of being the best country in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and it was almost, I think the implication in the language of five civilized tribes is how, how lucky, right? Mm-hmm. How lucky those five tribes were to get to come to Oklahoma. I mean, I think that's how I internalized it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and, and it still goes on. I don't know that it's changed that much. 
Yes, there's been, um, I came of age when I started writing poetry at the University of New Mexico, when Ishmael Reed and others were, there was a growing consciousness of, wait a minute, you know, who is America? And, you know, literature tradition should include all the voices that was had been unheard of. So I grew up not knowing there were Creek poets, you know, that other people wrote poetry besides Wordsworth and yeah. Whitman and, and um, William Blake. I wanted to ask you, actually, um, in this volume, in An American Sunrise, so there's this Emily Dickinson poem, I'm Nobody, Who Are You?, which has been, mm-hmm. which gets... I feel like it's it's very it's um it's a poem that has inspired a lot of people I think especially women, mm-hmm. um, and I wondered you include it and you also make a note about Emily Dickinson's um I I just I'm curious about what that what that means that inclusion and the context you give of her childhood. It was because I write about it I I I don't know, I can't pull it up really quick. But it was like having this, I asked for books of poetry. I remember when I was eight years old mm-hmm. and I would sit in my, I had a designated plate hiding places. And one of them, we had a very small two bedroom house and four children. And so my, my place to be was the closet and then little places outside. But I loved taking my poetry there and reading. And I liked getting up before anybody else because I could have that quiet and that peace. And when I read this poem by Emily Dickinson, which was in the Lewis Untermeyer Golden Treasury of Poetry. Right, that your mother gave you. (laughs) Yes, I read, you know, I'm nobody, who are you? And that felt just like me because I think all of my life, even now I feel like I'm sometimes uh, that I'm... It's, it's like nobody or I, I'm totally, I don't fit in. I think maybe everybody, <laughs> I know that's that's the great paradox, but everybody yeah. probably feels the same way. Is that, you know, I'm nobody and especially women, you know, who are yeah. you? Right? So here is this young woman speaking to me and I heard her, the voice in here is I heard somebody from the page speaking directly to me. And I think that's the power of it. Yeah. And then you, and then you noted at the bottom Emily Dickinson was six years old, and when uh, Manawi, when, uh-huh, when and his family began the immigration to the West, and Manawi was your—that's he was your relative, right? Grandfather. I'm Great. six generations from him. Right. Would you read a page that 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 so that that little story? There's a little story about him, also, on page five of of. Um, I mean, it's the second entry in American Sunrise. Do you want to yes. just read that? My grandfather, Manawi, also spelled M-E-N-A-W-A, and some people in the South say Menowa, of some generations back, six actually, <laughs> was allowed to visit his home at Okfusky, near what is now known as Dadeville, Alabama, to stay there one night before being exiled to the West. He is reported to have said to a highly reputable gentleman, after gifting him with his portrait. I am going away. I have brought you this picture. I wish you to take it and hang it up in your house that when your children look at it, you can tell them what I have been. For when I cross the great river, my desire is that I may never see, again, see the face of a white man. After he left, he never turned back. He kept walking forward with his beloved people. 
I returned to see what I would find in these lands we were forced to leave behind. Yeah. Um, you know, amidst all of the drama of 2020, there was this incredible Supreme Court decision, <laughs> McGirt versus Oklahoma, which, you know, Joy, it almost feels like another example of, I mean, you, you talked a little while ago about this this um this invisibility somehow this way that this amnesia but this way that in this culture there's a disappearance that there's that things get this this part of our story of your story of our of our collective stories disappeared and and this was an incredible supreme court decision in the middle of 2020 and there was so much else going on so you know i i kind of having being from oklahoma i just i felt like Everybody should be think, t- talking about this. And you did write about it in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about what so, – so this – yeah, would you – why don't you just talk about what that meant for you? Um, because it was it – was I mean, it, there was this incredible language in there by Justice Neil Gorsuch um, that – I mean, there's language in there um, – there's something about this. Oh, Yeah. On the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. Yes. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. Um, and essentially, he decreed, and it's in a, in a context that is not obscure, but you know, the context of it wouldn't necessarily uh, suggest that, that this kind of decision would come down. That much of Oklahoma is still sovereign tribal, it, legally sovereign tribal land. So yeah, tell me about experiencing that. Oh my gosh, it's it's sort of like it's a. Uh, it was stunning. Yeah. Especially out of the time and the particular court. In the middle of all of it, to have this decision come came come through that reaffirmed what we already knew. Uh, to affirm that, yes, we, you know, we were sent here, these lands, we were told that if we moved or when we moved, that we, these would be our lands under our own governance. And quickly that was undone. And it was (laughs) celebration. I mean, we couldn't be out in person necessarily because of the pandemic, but it was... I mean, people were crying in tears, and I could just feel like my Aunt Lois and others. I mean, to have this decision come down after all of we what we've gone through here and this state and continue to go through. So so there's that there is that and that incredible celebration. And then I think it was a day later, was it a day or two days later? I I had a dream. I woke up. We were getting ready to drive. To, um, to do the foundation tracks of my new album in pa- mm. Port Townsend, Washington. We had a, we we're gonna drive a little van, RV van, to socially distance and the news comes down and I had had a dream the night before. I saw the Supreme Court building and I saw it blow up. <sighs> and then I start getting these calls and these texts and emails saying, 
you know, already there were people in the state, and I won't name names, legislators and such, who were trying to destroy it immediately. Hmm. You mean in they Oklahoma? Were, yes, they were at work, you know, to destroy the decision to enact emergency uh, laws, or they were being, they thought they were being very tricky to totally undo it overnight. And that was so, of course, you know, and of course they would. And that was so, it's still disturbing because I see it, there's, it's still happening. And why, you know, why, why, what is it? You know, why, what is it? Hmm. Is it this deeply inherent racism, culturalism, you know, hatred of, or the need to feel like they have dominion, or they feel like they do, they deserve dominion. I, I don't, I, I try to understand it, the roots of it, to understand how to move gracefully and find a way for, you know, everyone to live in a peaceable, in a manner in which, you know, everyone wants, I would think that everyone wants a place for their children, but to live and to live peaceably, but why aren't we included in as human? You know, we're still being thought of. We're still being excluded, and we're still yeah. it's still there. Those same people that moved us are still there. The same people that you know signed off and and drove us and and forced us out of the South into the Tulsa, they're still there. Um, I had a. I had a call um, earlier, just a few months ago, from a podcast from some students at OU. And maybe you were part of this project as well. Um, young people talking about how to reckon differently with a lot of history, right? Including mm -hmm. the Trail of Tears. And I, I, I found that very, I found that lovely and hopeful. Um, you you wrote in the New York Times that you said your elders always believed that there would be justice, um, though justice though justice is sometimes seven generations away or even more. It is inevitable, and that that's real to you, still even in the face of of this despair that you just described. But I mean, I hold those things together. I have I have grandchildren, great grandchildren, and children. And in the original teachings, we're told that they're all our children. And how can I? I have to think of them, and they're the rudder of hope. I mean, that's where we're going mm -hmm. with them. I have to know that in the. I have to know that there is a larger, beautiful sense, and and it's in those teachings. You know, it, it's in those teachings that that um, that we're all working towards a kind of harmony. Everything is about. I think even you know all the teachings ultimately wind up the stories. Everything wind up at a point of harmony. And when you wind up at that point, everything has been reckoned with. We will. Everything will be reckoned with. I feel like you have this sense of different kinds of time. So there's history, 
there's a time of European settlement. Um, there's a lifetime, and there's also somewhere you I cannot know where this is. You write about the whole of time, W H O L E, um, which makes that perspective possible. I think so. I mean, I think if if you stay in the mind, in the human mind, you're not going to, a human mind tends to be pretty literal, Yeah. even as it can jump around, but it's not, it doesn't necessarily have the access to other kinds of time. You can think about it and analyze it and, and make structures and architecture to hold the ideas of other kinds of time. But you have to, um, uh, you know, just like you wouldn't use a certain kind of meter to measure electricity that doesn't measure electricity, mm. you know. Yeah. It's like you need something else to, you know, there's another kind of perspective that you bring to understand or even move within time that would give you that perspective. I mean, that's why that image, that NASA image of the Earth when it was released, because it was top secret for a while, that showed the Earth as a beautiful, beautiful being was so powerful because it shifted, certainly it shifted awareness. Yeah. And it gave us a perspective which, you know, going into a larger kind of time or place can, like, like my grandson and I standing there watching this field that we were inside of, even as we were watching it, um, it gave us that glimpse into even another kind of time. Even the internet, you know, yeah, you know, can be linked. If you think about it, even the internet and the idea of networks can be linked to that image. Yeah. And and the story matrix and the story field, as you describe, also is mm-hmm. more generous and expansive than mm-hmm. that linear cultural imagination. It it's in sync with that idea, with that vision. Um, maybe just a few more readings before we finish. Okay. Um, you, um, I watched this beautiful ceremony that was kind of your inaugural, or not your inauguration, but your inaugural pr- appearance as Poet Laureate. Uh, was it the National Book Festival? And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you were the first Poet Laureate to walk out on stage with her sac- saxophone around her <laughs> neck. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't think... <laughs> there were actually a few poets who play saxophone, but no, I think that I... Yeah, I'm the first one to yeah. do that. <laughs> um, there's a... There's a um, Let's see. It's page seventy-seven. When you when you tell this story, uh, this is in in an American Sunrise when Adolf Sachs patented the first saxophone on June twenty-third. <laughs> Would you read that? Yes, I like that piece. Yeah, and I always say thank you to Adolf Sachs that I use my poetic license and write a poem where. Uh, rabbit invents the saxophone. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that comes before it, but it's too long <laughs> for <Yes>. radio. <laughs> okay. When Adolf Sachs pat- patented the first saxophone on June 23rd, 1846, the Creek Nation was in turmoil. The people had been moved west of the Mississippi River after the Creek Wars, which culminated in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. We were putting our lives back together in new lands where we were promised we would be left alone. 
The saxophone made it across the big waters and was introduced in brass bands in the South. The music followed rivers into new towns, cities, all the way to our new lands. Not long after, in the early 1900s, my grandmother, Naomi Harjo, learned to play saxophone. I can feel her now when I play the instrument we both loved and love. The saxophone is so human. Its tendency is to be rowdy, edgy, talk too loud, bump into people, say the wrong words at the wrong time, but then you take a breath all the way from the center of the earth and blow. All that heartache is forgiven. All that love we humans carry makes a sweet, deep sound, and we fly a little. It's wonderful. <laughs> this is lovely. I, I appreciate it so much. There's so many things I'd love to I'd love to delve in even farther. Um, thanks for going all these places that you went. And yeah, Crazy Brave is wonderful. And I, I really can't wait to read the new memoir. And we'll, we'll make sure that we get people excited about that. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Blessings. Bye. <laughs>